This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, and I'll be reading the first nine verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. This is the word of the Lord, and he blessed it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, we hear in your word today great and many promises, but not merely promises to your servant Abram, but promises which are true and which are real for us. Promises in which we see the glory of our salvation in Christ and the work that he has come to do in the world. Pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts to receive these truths and that in light of them, we would worship you and serve you as you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Promises are a very important and serious business. Few things can help or harm a human relationship more than the making and then keeping or breaking of promises. If someone close to you has broken a significant promise, you probably remember it. It can be the sort of thing that you can carry with you for a very long time. I know a man who is now in his late 60s, His father had promised him when he was young that he was going to pay his way through college. But this father was 
notoriously stingy with his money. And so when the time came for college, for the son, he went to his father to ask him to make good on the promise. But his father refused. He basically said, oh, you, you have enough money. You can make money. You can do it without my help, which was not true. This man never got to finish college. He went for a couple of years, and he was academically doing fine. He got the grades and such, but he ran out of money, and he had to drop out after a couple of years. And this significantly harmed their relationship. In fact, this broken promise happened over 50 years ago. And the father in question has been dead for over 15 years, and yet this man still talks about this broken promise and how it hurts him to this very day. See, promises matter. Promises are important. Promises can make or break relationships. In fact, many relationships are created by and exist upon promises. If you take out a loan to buy a house or a car or something else of the sort. You are making a promise to repay. The relationship depends on you fulfilling your promises. And things are not going to go well for you if you don't. If you are married, your marriage rests not on your romantic feelings, the quiver in your liver about your beloved. As nice as that is, that's not always something you necessarily have. It's not always something you have to the same extent. No, a Christian marriage consists of the making of solemn vows. You know, all that business you hear at weddings about for richer and poorer, sickness and health to have and to hold. These are vows. These are promises made before God and to your spouse that are not to be broken. See, there is something in promises that reflects to us the character of God. Our God makes promises to His people. We have seen throughout Genesis so far the unfolding of God's covenants, which themselves are promises that rest upon God's infallible Word. Of course, the difference between God's promises and ours is that God cannot and will not break His promises. Perhaps you're like the man I described earlier who bears the scars of broken promises in your life. Well, today I want you to hear the word of a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who keeps every promise He makes without fail. Now, last week in Genesis 11, we saw the division of the world into nations, into peoples. Particularly, we saw after the episode of the Tower of Babel, how once again a division has been drawn between the two cities, the city of God and the city of man. Now, it would seem at this point that the city of man is in fact much larger. It consists of most of the families, most of the tribes, most of the nations alive on earth after the flood. In fact, it seems we are once again basically down to one family from the line of Shem that represents the remnant of God's people on the earth. And even this one family, things are not necessarily going so well. As we read last week, we read of this man Abram. He has a wife, Sarai, but Sarai is barren. Thus far, she has been unable to conceive and have children. 
And Abram and Sarai are not young. It would seem that their best childbearing years were likely behind them. One might look at the situation that we are in at the end of chapter 11 and start to wonder if God's promises that were first given to Adam and Eve after the fall in Genesis 3, given again to Noah and then through Noah in Genesis 6 and Genesis 9, were at risk of failing. But as I said, God will keep every promise He makes without fail. And at a time where the promise seems to be obscured and at risk of failing, God shows up to reaffirm and reproclaim His promise to the remnant of His people, represented by this man, Abram. So we will look at this promise and its effects today in three points. First, we see the word of promise in verses 1 through 3. God will make his generous promise to Abram of what he will do for him. And second, we see the work of promise in verses 4 through 6. Because Abram believes the promise, he acts accordingly. He does certain things that God desires him to do. And then third and finally, we see worship by the promised in verses 7 through 9. In light of these promises, there is a reaction from God's people, one of worshiping the God who made them. So first we will look at the word of promise in verses 1 through 3. We see that the Lord spoke to Abram. We saw at the end of the last chapter how prior to the death of Terah, Abram's father, Terah and his whole family had begun this journey westward towards Canaan, but then that journey ended in Haran, where Terah died. We see now that the time comes for Abram to move again. We see that sometime previous to this, God had spoken to Abram, telling him to do so. Now again, we don't know if the previous move was also under God's direct command, but we do know that it the very least, it was providential in positioning Abram closer to Canaan, which was where he was ultimately going. In the opening of chapter 12, we see what God says to Abram. Get out from your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So at the point Abram received this command, it is not exactly known where he is going. God is asking Abram to take a step of faith, a rather large step of faith. Imagine God appears to you, tells you to leave behind everyone, everything you have ever known. In fact, we know for certain Abram did not know where he was going because we're told so in Hebrews 11.8. It says there, by faith Abraham, as Abram would later be known, obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So God calls Abram to act in faith, and Abram will. But this is not merely a bare command. It is a command affixed to a gracious and covenantal promise, which we see beginning in verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now remember, Abram, he's a man of advanced age. We find out here in a moment he's 75 years old. And he has a wife of advancing age, and they have no children. Now in light of those circumstances, this is a 
a pretty bold offer. I'm going to make you a great nation. Not only are you going to have descendants, but you will have so many descendants, they will constitute a tribe, a country, a people. So this requires faith on Abram's part. We'll see as this story unfolds in various times and ways, this faith will be shaken. Abram and Sarai will doubt that the promise will come to pass, or they will try to bring it to pass by means which God has not chosen to do it. This will be the source of much pain and strife and destruction, and as failure to trust God always produces these things. But even despite Abram's faltering and sometimes failing faith, God will remain faithful to his promises and bring them to pass. We also see at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3 that this promise to Abram is not just about Abram. It says, and you shall be a blessing. Not only will Abram be blessed, but he will be God's means of blessing others other peoples, other families, and other nations. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Throughout Genesis, I have been talking about the city of God, the people of God throughout history, standing over and against the city of man. This is using that terminology of the church father Augustine. So what this promise to Abram here means is that God is going to preserve and continue the city of God, and then other nations will be judged on where they stand in relation. In fact, those who align themselves with the city of God become a part of the city of God. Though this is a promise that is originally worked out through a particular family that becomes a particular nation, it always has the conversion and salvation of the Gentile nations in view. All those patriarchs and families and origins of nations that we have looked at in the last couple of chapters after the flood, it's a long road. It's going to take a long time and a lot's going to happen, but God will eventually draw even those nations that have rejected him back unto himself. This is seen in the final line of verse 3. And in you, in Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is previewed in Abram is the church, consisting of every tribe, tongue, and nation, advancing in its proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. The city of God continuing and growing and expanding and pressing on for as long as this world goes. Now, there is a different interpretation of this promise to Abram that is very popular in our day. This is an interpretation associated with dispensationalism and Zionism, which holds that this promise is specifically to the physical, biological descendants of Abram, the people of the Jews, and it is pertinent to their continued existence in the land of Israel. This view has really picked up steam leading up to and since 1948 when the modern nation-state of Israel was formed. According to this view, people and nations will receive blessings and cursings from God, particularly based on how they treat Israel and the Jews. 
But this is not what this text is talking about. Who are the children of Abram, or later Abraham? Well, we've been in the evenings going through the Gospel of John. And as we've seen in the Gospel of John, Jesus is finding himself opposed by the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the ruling and religious establishment, who are, like Jesus himself, biological children of Abram, his descendants. And they also claim to be the spiritual children of Moses, the keepers and teachers of the law. But over and over again, we see Jesus rebuking them and condemning them and placing them outside of the people of God because of their unbelief. Belief, faith, is what determines who the children of Abram are. Paul illustrates this in Romans chapter 11. There he has his teaching concerning an olive tree and its branches. So this tree represents the people of God, the children of Abraham. He talks about some branches being broken off. This would be those of the Jews who do not believe. But there are many Jews who remain. There are many Jews who do believe. You think of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish, a Jewish feast. So of these 3,000 plus that are converted at Pentecost, almost all of them would have been Jews. But then there are, as these unbelieving branches are broken off, there are new branches grafted in. Now, I did not realize until a couple years ago, this is actually a, a thing that with trees is done. I did an internship up in Washington State. I learned up there they have lots of fruit orchards, and they actually will take branches off of other kinds of fruit trees and graft them onto different ones to try to get more yields, more bug resistance, disease resistance, other kinds of favorable outcomes for their fruit production. So that's what Paul was describing as what happens with the people of God. You have these new branches, Gentile believers that are grafted onto one and the same tree that is the people of God, and they come to life, they grow, they bear fruit, they become a part of the tree. They are not a new tree. They are not a separate tree or something other than a tree, these Gentiles that are brought in. They become part of the one and the same original tree. There is one unified people of God throughout all of human history. This one city of God, as we've been looking at its beginnings in Genesis. We see similar things in Christ's own teaching. We'll get there, Lord willing, in a few weeks in our own series in John, but in John 8, 39 and 40, we read, They answered and said to him, that would be these Jewish leaders who opposed Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. He later goes on to tell them who their father is. It's not God. It's not Abraham. It's the devil. And that Abraham knew Jesus and rejoiced to see his day. So all of this to say, God is promising Abraham physical descendants, but most of all, he is promising spiritual descendants. He is promising through Abram 
the continuation of the city of God. Abram will be the father of the people of God. Through Abram's line will come the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all peoples and all nations will be reconciled to God. Just as Christ's kingdom, as we've seen in John, is bigger than a piece of land in the Middle East, the children of Abram are much greater than those who share his biological lineage. But after this word of promise, we now come to our second point, the work of promise in verses 4 through 6. So God has chosen Abram to be his. He has revealed himself. He has revealed his salvation to Abram. He has made that, although it's not explicitly stated until later, this is that covenant promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. But in light of this, there are things that Abram does, things that he should and must do. And he does them. In verse 4, we see that Abram departs Haran as God has told him to do. And it is there that we find out that Abram was 75 years old. We find out later his wife Sarai is about a decade younger than him. She would have been about 65. Again, getting past the age where most people, even by then, were having children. Also, a little old to be moving off to a foreign land and starting a new life. We also read that they take another person with them, that being Lot, the son of Abram's deceased brother, Haran. Back at the end of chapter 11, we saw Lot's birth described, and then the death of his father, Haran, which was before Terah. So it seems that Haran died young. He died prematurely. So perhaps with Abram being childless and Lot then being fatherless, Abram became something of an adopted father figure for Lot. Or perhaps Abram regards Lot as something of a brother in place of his brother who had died. That seems to be more the case in chapter 13. But whatever exactly their relationship, Lot wants to be with Abram. And in fact, he is and wants to be a part of God's people. In 2 Peter 2.7, Lot is regarded as someone who was righteous and someone who was delivered, this despite some of the hardships and sins and difficulties that will come later in Lot's life, as we will see. But at least here at the beginning, Lot is setting out to do what is right before the Lord. We read that these three... Abram and Sarai and Lot, they take their possessions, they take their people, they take their servants. And they all set out heading west. And they arrive where Abram's father had purposed to go, in Canaan. Of course, they arrive finding a land that, wouldn't you know it, already has people living in it. In fact, they have to pass through part of it. They can't stop, they can't stay because... The land's not available. It's not theirs to take. They do come to Shechem, an area west of the Jordan. It's in a valley between two mountains. And we read that the Canaanites were in the land because it is the land of Canaan, so who else would be there? But if we look back to what we saw previously in chapters 9 and 10, we have to remember that Canaan was the cursed son of Ham, the grandson of Noah. It's those who descended from Canaan that now occupy this land. And yet God purposes ultimately to remove them from this land. 
but not yet. For all of Abram's life, in fact, for several hundred more years, the Canaanites are going to continue to live in this land. While Abram received these great promises from God, many of them would not come to full realization in his lifetime. He's promised to be a great nation, and he'll see a few of his descendants, but not too many. He's promised the land, but he's not going to own any of that land in his life except one small piece that he buys to bury his wife. No, Abram in his life, he's going to be a stranger and a sojourner among a people that are not his own and in a land that is not yet his. But it is on this promise of the land that we turn to our third and final point. After the word of promise and the work of promise, we come to worship by the promised in verses 7 through 9. Once Abram and his party arrive at Shechem, we see that God appears to him again with another covenantal word, a word of promise. To your descendants, I will give this land. This is the promise that makes the promised land the promised land. It is in this land that Abram and his descendants will dwell, and eventually they will possess it. Now, I mentioned earlier an issue with how these promises to Abram are understood in our day. There is a similar issue here with dispensationalism and how it treats this promise of the land. They again take this promise and they try to apply it specifically to the physical descendants of Abram and to the Jews and to this land now known as Israel. But again, this makes the promise too small. It narrows it too far. Israel is in the Old Testament, the land of God's people. But with the coming of Christ and the spread of the gospel, the land of God's people is not confined to Israel. We just saw a few weeks ago in John how Jesus refused a kingship in Israel. He came to do more. That kingship was not big enough for him. The land of God's people in the church age is the whole earth. The earth is the Lord's. Now, we do not see this fully realized in the present age. But we do see the gospel going forth. We do see more and more of the world coming under Christ's lordship, being subdued, becoming a part of the city of God. Now, this is still despite sin and resistance and opposition that also grows in the present age. But at the end, when God judges and removes his and our enemies, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. This earth will be remade and all of it, every last piece of it will belong to God and to his people. Not just Israel, the whole thing. So the land promises to Abraham, yes, they are fulfilled in the near term in the Old Testament by his descendants possessing Canaan. Of course, they eventually lose it because they reject God. But the ultimate fulfillment is that all descendants of Abraham, the true descendants of Abraham, as we talked about before, be they Jews or the Gentiles grafted in, they will come to possess the whole earth. That's where this promise is ultimately going. It's not talking about Israel today. Now, 
All of that to say, this covenantal word of promise provokes a response in Abram at the end of verse 7. We read that he builds an altar to the Lord. In fact, we see he does this twice. Because though they stay in Shechem for a time, they eventually have to move again to the mountain west of Bethel. Further to the south, and again, once they're there, Abram continues to do this. He builds an altar to the Lord. So what do we see here? In light of God's promises, Abram is compelled to worship. We see in this building of altars, and of we see... In this worship, something we can trace all the way back to the beginning. We saw this right after the fall. People worshipped God and knew how to worship God. You can remember in Genesis 4 that Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice. Now it would get him killed by his jealous brother, but even in the earliest family, the earliest revelation, they knew how to worship God. We see that Noah did the same thing after the flood, built an altar, offered sacrifices. This pattern of worship by sacrifice has been passed down through the covenantal line, through the line of the city of God to Abram and those who are with him. So what does this teach us? Well, God's grace, God's covenantal promises and blessings The truth of the gospel, it inspires a particular response in us. In fact, we see two ways that it provokes a response in us, and both in this passage. In our second point, we saw how God's covenantal promises, His grace to Abram prompted obedience. He actually went and did what God told him to do. There's obedience in light of God's blessing and salvation. It's Sort of like the structure of our catechism. The first part dealing with what man is to believe concerning God. And then the second part, what duty God requires of man. So basically what is true about God and his relationship to us. And then what do we do in light of that? In light of who God is and what he has done for us, we worship and we work. Now this is the opposite of every other religion in the world where the formula is reversed. They believe that you need to work and you need to worship. You need to do all of these things. And if you do enough of these things, and if you do them right, then God will bless you. Then God will save you. You basically have to work your way, earn your way into God's favor. But that's not Christianity. That's legalism, that's works righteousness, and that is a false gospel. It is not that we worship and work so that God might save us. Rather, because God has saved us, we worship and we work. So, Abram heard God's voice, and he went where God told him, and his first recorded act when he got there was to worship God in the prescribed and acceptable manner. And the same should be true of us. God reveals himself to us. He promises to give us life and blessedness and salvation. And then in thanksgiving, we worship him as he has commanded us to do, and we serve him in obedience to his word. 
What we see here in Abram, even in these types and shadows of the Old Testament, we see the whole Christian life set before us. Now we receive the promises of God's salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were all fallen and sinful, bearing the guilt of Adam's sin, as well as all our actual sins that proceed from it. Though we were worthy of judgment and wrath and condemnation, Jesus Christ, descendant of Abraham, fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. He lived the perfect life we could not. See, we see here that Abram was obedient, but whatever his obedience was, it was imperfect. It was the sin-stained obedience of all of Adam's race. None of us, even when we are at our best, are without sin. But Christ, the second Adam, was perfect and without sin. He fulfilled the law perfectly, never deficient, never wrong in any way. And then Christ offered himself as a once-for-all perfect atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins and turn away the wrath of God. See, these sacrifices, even that we see Abram offering, they can't do that. Only one who is a man can pay for the sins of man. And only one who is God can bear the wrath of God due for sin. No sheep or bulls or anything like that could do that. And no other people can do that. We have to have a mediator who is the God-man. So Abram's sacrifices, they were types to point him and to point the others with him to Christ, the mediator of this covenant of grace. The same covenant given in the garden, the same covenant given to Noah, and this covenant given to Abram. So the question for us today is this. Do we believe this? Do we believe that Christ is the hope of salvation, that He was the hope of salvation ultimately for Abram, and He is our hope of salvation? Do we trust and rest on Christ for forgiveness of sins? And if we do, do we also serve Christ in love and thankfulness and obedience doing what His Word requires, striving to keep His Word, to keep His will, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it, and in worshiping Him in spirit and in truth as He has set forth in His Word. This is the whole of the Christian life, the life of the people of God, the life of the true children of Abraham. The question for us is, are we a part of that? Are we found in Christ? And if we are found in Christ, is this the life that is characteristic of ours? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these promises that, though given to Abram, point us to what you have promised even for us that the earth is yours, that your gospel will go forth, that you are building a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that ultimately we will possess the whole earth, the new heavens and the new earth, and that is our hope of glory. I pray that in light of this hope, we would work, that we would do what you have called us to do, that we would be obedient to your word and to your law, that your spirit would work that new obedience in us, 
And we pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, as you have called us all to do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.